Right, hello. Episode two. You may notice it's like decline in sound quality compared to the first episode intro. Uh, and that's because I'm actually recording this out and about on the Grand Union Canal in West London uh, on my iPhone. The reason being, somewhat ironically, considering the nature of today's guest, is that my neighbour has decided to crack out the decks while he's on isolation. Which is fair enough, you know, whatever, whatever gets you through. Um, in, the, in the interest of being experimental, actually, this episode is a slightly different format from the last one, in that it's going to be a chat with just one guy. Uh, that guy is James Kirkham. Uh, James recently started a new role as Chief Business Officer at the much-loved independent record label Defected Records. At risk of being accused of defaulting to disruption, <laughs> it's a pretty well-trodden path to say that the music industry has gone through huge disruption over the last 20 years. And Defected, who started way back in 1998, uh, have done more than just weather that storm. They've come out of it as disruptors and real agents of change in the industry themselves. Uh, and in the very current context of the, of the C word, I'm running out of euphemisms for it, uh, I thought now would be a great time to hear from James about how Defected have quickly pivoted their approach to adapt to this new unprecedented era of disruption. And here's another train. This is a louder canal than I was expecting. I was uh, hoping you'd just hear, like, twittering moorhens and things. Anyway... Uh, prior to joining Defected, James was at Copper 90, and before that he was at Leo Burnett, but his journey really kicked off back in 2001, when he was just 23, when he set up his own digital agency, Holler. Uh, but I'll let him tell you all about that anyway. There's another train. This is the Lockdown Lowdown from the branded content team at Engine Creative. Here's James Kirkham. Holler was sort of best known for, uh, eventually for social media, but it started pre-social media, which again makes me feel terribly old even saying that. Uh, we worked initially in the music industry, interestingly enough, where we made kind of small viral e-cards, things that people could share early send to a friend mechanics, basically social before social existed. Uh, we worked with music and record labels. We then worked in TV and we're probably best known or our agency was best known for the work we did in television uh, probably with Channel 4, we launched a TV show called Skins, um, which I guess changed a lot of the way people did marketing. It was the first, we were the first agency in the world to market a television show using social media, which um, which uh, when I told people that now who work in my teams, they look at me as though I've sort of come from the Victorian era or something like that. Uh, but it was quite a novel at the time where we could coalesce fans around a new property create discovery using what was then myspace we gave away 20 minutes of the show free on a social platform for the first time so there were lots of like firsts where and it was a very exciting part of our careers and we promoted shows like phone jacker and the inbetweeners in sort of a similar vein afterwards using social at the heart um and holler became digital agents of the year and kind of it spawned offices in sydney uh, and latterly in the middle east uh, I sold Holler in 2010 to Leo Burnett, the ad agency, uh, and became their global head of social and mobile. So kind of running stuff socially around the world with big blue chip clients like McDonald's and Samsung and the like. Um, and Procter & Gamble, we made an advert called Like a Girl that we were very sort of famous for and were very proud of. And I eventually left advertising 
and joined the world of football, where I led and helped lead, was on the leadership team of Copper 90, uh, working with Tom Thurwall, the CEO, who's still CEO there, which is a, for those who don't know, it's like an ind- the world's largest independent football media business. It was all about the emotion and the feeling of football and the goosebumps that you get. Everything outside the 90 minutes, basically, that makes the 90 minutes matter more. So it was famous for kind of films and documentaries and shows like FIFA and Chill and kind of um, it was actually the first time football was ever done on YouTube um, without any rights, uh, without any presenting talent. So it kind of really changed the game, I guess, in football. I was there for four years, loved every minute. And finally, uh, rolled the dice uh, as I've got a little bit older and I thought I've always wanted to work in the music business and I'd kind of known the guys that affected and the great work they were doing. And so I'm very lucky to have joined Defected Records at the start of this year, which is where I am now. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about that Skins launch. I remember that so well. I was living living in Bristol. At the time. Oh, really? So it's like right at the kind of heart. You were the it's epicenter like... in Bristol. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone wanted to live there for a while. Yeah. Everybody wanted to work in Topshop Bristol. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I, I love that. I had that, that real honour of that. <laughs> that there time. you go. <laughs> but it's funny how that you know. I remember that the um, the Foles house party that you did in the in the lead up to yeah, the series, yeah, and, gotcha, and obviously gotcha. that that kind of like foreshadows your move to Defected in a way. Has the music <laughs> industry always been something that's been like that's always been a long term goal for you? Um, probably not deliberately. Like I must do at this point in my career, go to music. I've just bloody loved it. I was very lucky having done. It's really interesting you making that comparison. And someone else said something similar recently where they said the thread through my work is about coalescing fans and mobilizing people around a property, aiding discovery. Music's always been at the heart. And it's kind of true. Copper 90, I think, changed things in a really brilliant way in the respect that I could be doing something predicated on a passion. So being doing football literally every single day for four years, and I bloody love football, uh, that was both uh, a privilege, but also it was lovely that you could deep dive into something which felt different from my agency days. And and I think music, therefore, you know, I love football and I bloody love music too. And they are big passions in my life and have been for a while, you know, certainly for as long as I can remember, put it that way. So, yeah, I've definitely always wanted to and known that I would like to. And I wanted to see if I even could, to be honest. Um and defected to their enormous credit, both gave me this opportunity, but they've been changing the game for quite a while, actually. You know, it's a record label, but there's so much more than that. It's a 21-year-old record label, house music label. It's got the largest sort of house music community in the world, actually. But um, I've kind of referred to it since I've been there as a new era music company because it has... You know, on an ordinary year, it has about half a million people who are buying, buying uh, tickets to events and parties from the Croatia Festival that are, to the, on an entire Ibiza season. There are sub-brands like Glitterbox. Uh, there's this amazing kind of content live uh, IP strategy. There's a documentary coming out later this summer, actually, on Glitterbox, which is really a sort of an hour study of the LGBTQ community through the eyes of dancers about a journey to the dance floor. So it's about storytelling. It's about content. It's about social prowess, all of which have been really a big part of, I guess, you know, my career. Uh, it just happens to be through the brilliant lens of dance culture, which is, um, as I say, a privilege. And I guess in, in a lot of ways, it's similar to Copper in that you're talking to a very established, a very knowledgeable and a very discerning community. Mm. Who, and 
you know, I've always said about those kind of communities is that they really, they sniff out the bullshit as pretty yeah. quick. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, do, do you think that authenticity, do, does that affect how you speak to them as an audience? It's so true what you've just said. It's so true. Like, I know it's, an, you know, the notion of authenticity and legitimacy, I know they're overused words in our kind of industry, if you like, but my gosh, that's that's never been more applicable when you are, as you say, speaking within a community like that. I mean, there are so, it's it's like the, they're the definition of vociferous. Like you you drop something, it's like a stone, and you drop something in the community, and it will explode. I mean, at the moment, without getting boring to listeners, but I think on average, even a if you just take a Facebook post, I think on average it takes about five thousand likes. That's like an average post. I think we 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 did a piece of analysis the other day and saw that the same post posted on defected would 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 achieve between 10 and 300 times uh, greater engagement than if it was solely on an artist page what it basically is saying is there are certain brands about that have been so about authenticity that they are so the editor of choice that people listen and they just care they won't always listen as in just take what you're saying to your point you know they'll be first to jump in if they don't think something is appropriate or if they don't think something is relevant or they're not sure about a single or a track or what genre it is or whatever that impassioned kind of response is but overall it's an overwhelming desire to be a part of something which is a very seductive thing to be a part of that kind of feeling of belonging and again it goes back to what I was saying with skins it's fans coalescing around this kind of common unity, a common goal, like being a part of something, that's really strong. And, and and how do you think that applies when it comes to then to advertisers or brand partnerships and sponsorship? Do you think there's space for other brands, even like non-music brands, to be part of this kind of thing and talk to this community? For sure, you know, um, for sure with us. I mean, I'm a, at the end of the day, ultimately a, a commercial animal, as it were. It was, you know, I sort of led the agency-like function in Copper 90 as it became having done that for sort of, you know, uh, whatever it was now, 12, 15 years at Holler and Leah Burnett. So it's a world I know well. And Copper 90s may be a good example where it would be, we would turn down an awful lot of approaches every week because it's about the appropriate partnerships that would suit our audience or as close as you can get. It's the same with Defected, you know, Defected at the end of the day, make amazing music and put out a lot of records. And there's a huge amount of money made from music, actually. It's a, it's a misnomer that, you know, music's in, sort of trouble it's it's gone way beyond that from the biggest labels in the world your warners with ed sheeran to the likes of labels like defected if you've got a catalog you will make money from music if you've got quality music to put out um so that's still the core and in terms of the commercial uh pillar if you like of a business but for people like me i also want to bring on the right partners too and if we are putting on an event or an activation if we're doing a festival season if we've got a content series an episodic series if we've got a documentary then it might be that there's a real suitable brand partnership to be had but it again I don't want to be kind of contrived but it must be about that value exchange it must be something that feels appropriate for the audience something that they get something out of even if that's just an offer for them or something positive or something that they wouldn't have previously got were it not for that brand association just something beyond just badging it encouraging brands to do more than just badge is everything and and i think as well when it comes to those the brands like yourselves that speak to a really passionate and engaged audience you're only really as good 
as your last post. Yeah. Like we always used to say that. Well, I used to work on on Top Gear, and yeah, the kind of car anoraks would instantly call you out. I remember once some we we had an intern who spelled Aston Martin wrong on a video, and nobody noticed it on the lower third, and it went out, and then that was talked about by Top Gear fans for about four years. <laughs> like. It was that that severe. Would well, you know what I, I, uh, Top Gear? I think is a brilliant example, be it football or music, or frankly something like cars. The level of passion in those communities, as you've just demonstrated, is obscene. And you are for you are you know rarely forgiven for making that that typo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then also, I guess you know, it does have the opposite effect. You know, you create something that really speaks to those kind of communities, and they they will love you. They well, they. There was a phrase um, that came out of the work we when we did all the way back, which has started this conversation it's, when we worked on skins, which was um, it was about these very hungry young audiences and what they're like now. And, it, you know, it still applies today, whatever we are, 15 years on. And it was about, you know, if you interrupt this kind of audience, they will ruthlessly filter you out. But if you engage them properly, they will do the marketing for you. And that completely stands true today. And it's still something I completely swear by. And it goes back to things like attention span and time span. I I, I happen to really dislike this kind of thing that came out a couple of years ago, these sort of ever decreasing ad unit sizes, uh, like six second ad formats which were supposedly born from this notion that, oh, it's great because view-through rates would be really high and people complete them. But it felt like such a diminishing return. It felt like an admission of defeat. Whereas I remember at the time this specific ad format came out, it was also the time when uh, the Childish Gambino pop video came out that was like four and a half, five minutes. It was like politically like multi-layered incendiary like it went to number one it took off on social through the very audience who apparently don't have an attention span and the point is if you just serve them up rubbish then there's such limitless choice of course people will switch and move but Mm. my 10 year old son watches four and a half hours of wwe or or south american Boca juniors documentaries entirely subtitled at 90 minutes a pop mm. like he's 10 now he's not ab- he's not abnormal it's just that's what's interesting so it will captivate look at the side men you know youtube influencers they smash out two and a half three hour videos because they understand their algorithms so well and the audience stay with it so if you get it right it's why joe rogan's three hour podcast joe rogan's making what x tens of million a year through advertising yeah, it works from a longevity perspective there, but people can consume at that length. It's just about making the right stuff and then people will share it accordingly. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I've, I've always felt that that kind of idea about decline in attention spans, people only pay attention to stuff. It is absolutely, I totally agree mm-hmm. with that statement. It's just a complete admission of defeat. It's an admission that you, you're not making good enough stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> Talking about the kind of the the very current context, um, and obviously with you guys launching the the virtual festivals, how did how did that all come about? What was what was the kind of idea that sparked that? I'll tell you how it came about: a WhatsApp conversation at about ten o'clock on a Sunday night. That was genuinely it, uh, which I love, <laughs> and um, 
we weird weird obviously so some of the listeners might not know but defected as well as being this kind of big sort of record label like i mentioned also does events it does experiences it does parties and festivals ultimately this classic thing of bringing people together on dance floors uniting people and having a great party um but in the outbreak of corona uh this suddenly changed and um we had to we had to suddenly cancel some events. We actually called it relatively early and, and cancelled or postponed a lot of events with a sort of six, eight week kind of distance. A lot of people were clinging on and hanging on, but we wanted to call it relatively early. And we, we, we ended up being proved right, obviously, in doing that. Sadly, we didn't want to be proved right. But um, we didn't want to just give up on the idea that we can bring people together. Plus, this is a pretty fractured time. Uh, so a WhatsApp conversation erupted one Sunday evening with probably half a dozen of us and out of it said, well, can we put on an event? Can we put on a party or a virtual party of some sort? And the idea actually then was going to solely be pulling out some unbelievable footage from some of our boat parties and festivals that we've held in the past around Europe and around the world, unseen sets from I don't know, Purple Disco Machine or Peggy Goo or whoever we were thinking of, uh, and putting them out, stringing them together, playing it out. So we did an announcement literally on the Monday morning that we were going to go live on the Friday with this. But there was such a response. So this is a few weeks back, um, or for those listening, this is effectively right at the start of the crisis in the UK. So it was before it was it was before the lockdown, uh, as it's known. Um, where it was more about um, important around things like hygiene and social distancing. But cut a long story short, DJs and artists all got in touch and said, can we be a part of it? Ministry of Sound then lent in and said, we'd like to be a part of it too. So we were able to actually run this thing live from a completely empty Ministry of Sound for definitely the first time that's ever been done. We had this almost relay race like uh, consecutive rather concurrent appearances of DJs, one after the other after the other. Uh, we made a real virtue of like wiping down the decks and sanitizing and elbow <laughs> elbow bumping, which was very much rightly the message, still the messaging now, but the messaging of the yeah. time, which actually came across brilliantly. And then we smashed 12 hours and it went kind of bananas. It um, it kind of caught an imagination and I think caught a certain feeling because people right now need it more than ever. There's an amazing quote by an artist, Honey Dijon, who, uh, who we work with, is one of our sort of talent who have got an album coming out later this year. And she says, dance floors unite people in a way that governments and religions never could. And I used to use that in a broader context of a divided world, post-Brexit, post-Trump. But you know what? It still applies now. And even though we can't now get on our actual real dance floors in nightclubs, this idea of bringing people together is so simple and so human. And what came out of it, I mean, everyone covered it from broadsheets to kind of broadcasters. And it was on BBC News and Radio 2 and real broad depth. You know, I think it was the first time Defect had been in the Telegraph, for example, or Forbes, which is really fabulous. Uh, everyone reporting on house music because house music is your passport to other culture. It is a lovely common denominator in that respect. The second follow-up week, people kind of demanded. We were never going to. That was never the idea. We just wanted to do a one-off. But everyone said, you have to do this again. So we followed it up the following week, but where we weren't able to even bring in the sort of half a dozen people into a single venue, 
we then created and recorded some bespoke sets from the likes of Reva Star, uh, people like Purple Disco Machine, a couple of old classics from the likes of Horsemeat Disco and added entirely new visuals and stitched together again another afternoon and evening. And I think what's become most, um, well, certainly what I've felt most rewarded by through it all is this layer that we sort of couldn't have anticipated. And people have said, uh, how do you, how can you like echo the feeling of the dance floor being in a club? And you, you can't, obviously. You're not going to be able to mimic that. But what's happened is people have put it on their connected TVs in their lounges. They've had it on their iPads, on their iPhones, whatever it might be. And they've sent in all of this stuff to us. We've got nurses raving in ambulances with an iPhone on the gearbox between them. We've got a guy in Greece in a hospital ward going bananas, getting out of his hospital <laughs> bed uh, with an iPad. You've got people from around the world tuning in their droves, feeling that lovely connection. Celebrities have been leaping on board, whether footballers like Trevor Sinclair or people like Susie Perry or people all over Twitter, just randomly, nothing to do with us getting on board. And it's this this feeling of people going, this is bringing the light and the love and in a time when they need it most, I guess, people with a gin and tonic or a beer or with their kids listening to records, introducing their kids to house music, like <laughs> all of that stuff, I don't think we anticipated. And I think that's the nice thing. And even beyond a defected or a brand thing, it's just a sign of the times. People need these outlets and they, they need to feel part of something together. And we are just one example of many people, I think, doing some great things at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, we're in that kind of weird place where the most community-minded thing you can do is isolate. <laughs> so yeah, right. That, that kind of weird paradox. But, you know, I think having that thing to rally around is really, really important for communities at this time. Yeah, I agree. I was on the, I was on the live feed on Friday, and obviously there's that really big video views number on YouTube in the corner, mm. but obviously they're just, just seeing just so much love coming through in the yeah. live comments so i've got a few of them here oh so wow these were these virtual festivals are the best thing to come out of this whole mess <laughs> i think i might be having more fun doing this at home alone anyway <laughs> uh, i love that i actually love how defected have put the love back into djs it was all getting so serious and oh. that's i think that's a really interesting thing as well is that yeah you're there supporting the community but also supporting the DJs who, you know, their livelihoods are, are being threatened at this time. Is that something that's important to you guys? God, yeah. I, by the way, I love those. And you can't keep abreast of all of these quotes. Those ones are absolutely wonderful. Um, God, yeah. I mean, Simon Dunmore leads from the front. He, again, for those listeners who don't know, he's well worth sort of a follow. He's wonderfully outspoken. You know, the guy was in Ibiza in 86, I think it was. He was been through every part of the scene. He held firm when EDM came and went and everything has sort of pointed and eventually come back and this incredible, he put out that Roger Sanchez record, the first number one. And so he's got some, this most ridiculous repertoire. He's one of these people with this black book that he's so modest and humble. And then, you know, just calls up Louis Vega or, you know, messaging Calvin Harris, like it's the most normal thing in the world. And people like me are like, oh, that's quite cool, isn't it? Um, but he cares deeply about the community and cares deeply about the people who are his peers, really, producers and DJs and artists and talent. Recently, it's been about trying to encourage them, like he's doing with us, with the label, with his A&R team, to frankly make more, to focus more on the craft and create. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to showcase, I guess, DJs, 
outside of our own communities, the virtual festival has done is great. Like I heard an- anecdotally that people like Riva Starr, who played on Friday, is a wicked Italian DJ, and he did this fantastic kind of uh, set full of like really famous kind of ed- uh, songs in in his re-edits. It was really lovely. But he put on, I think, several thousand new kind of Instagram followers and stuff like that as a consequence of people, some people seeing him for the first time. And that's the bit that I love where, you know, Defected is an unbelievable sort of hive of music knowledge, dance culture knowledge, ultimately house music knowledge. But I love the fact that it's so transcending that with something like this. There's a whole bunch of people tuning in for the first time, seeing the brand for the first time, seeing a, a DJ for the first time, hearing a, I don't know, David Penn record or a that Cassius record for the very first time. Like that idea of driving that discovery and giving DJs a chance to, you know, find this love when they're not being able to play at the moment is a, is, is a very special thing. And we need loads more of it because this is a long haul, I think. Um, so being inventive and trying to come up with this ingenuity or trying to be creative in this time is is incredibly important yeah totally and and i think one of the things around, around that actually that i really liked about your guys approach on this is that so much of it has been on existing platforms so on youtube facebook and instagram so it's already accessible to the audiences that you're speaking to on a daily basis yeah and they you know what they were all fabulous as well as in we we started with facebook and youtube live and um uh the ubiquitous nature of those platforms is everything at a time like this like you know there's very little people thank goodness who can't therefore access it and actually the night before the first festival twitter actually got in touch with us directly and said we're up for it too and lent in in a brilliant way and got people mobilized and it went seamlessly out on twitter as well and then last week we added twitch for the first time and you know arguably a more gaming like audience but again we just want to we just want it to be accessed we want this we don't want a barrier or a reason or any reason for people not to be able to frankly join in through music um you know even the likes of house party and zoom we've sort of we've encouraged people to get on there and sort of share and be there with their friends you know i've got whatsapp groups who are nothing to do with me work-wise who has been spending their last two friday nights having big kind of 20 30 man zooms raving with the defected uh night on in the background kind of thing and it's not as a defected thing it's just that's their soundtrack of their drinks evenings which they're holding and like seeing that bringing people together like that it's like gosh that's such a, a lovely honor yeah i think that's really interesting you say about like house party and whatsapp and zoom and stuff you know they're what you know going back to the kind of classic social strategy thing you'd be deemed as dark social platforms and that you as the brand have no idea about the conversations that are going on in there yeah right but notice that you guys have been actively promoting that yeah like when we decided to do it um i think one of the probably the day after when we realized what it could be on the friday one of the key things we were saying because we we have our normal promotions and events staff of course and people who really work the marketing of an event but normally that's very much turning the camera around on the crowd, taking the amazing kind of shots of the DJs, the feelings and when the record drops, all of that stuff. But it's very much that creation of FOMO from an event. The slight switch here, of course, is there is not really that event coalescing point. So it was about all of the living rooms and the bedrooms and the gardens and in the car and all of those moments that are being uh, that are happening, but encouraging people to please share them because 
we were trying to elevate as many as we could through our Insta stories and beyond and on Facebook and created bespoke little videos because the community then got off on that. The community got off on seeing the community. The fans loved seeing other fans and being a part of it and the sharing of those quotes and those moments and that feeling that that, that, that sort of happened. The DJs got so much out of that as well. You know, the, 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 funnily enough, the feeling of the first uh, Simon Dunmore has played, I don't know how many sets in his life, but he said that's maybe the most nervous he's ever been. And it was to an empty room. And it was, mm. it was because we had calculated the slightly frightening reach of tens of millions of eyeballs that were suddenly on this. And whether it be Shapeshifters, Simon, whether it be Sam Devine, uh, Cy Dunmore, they've played the biggest events in the world. And they said that might have been the most nervous they've ever been. And I <laughs> kind of love the paradoxical madness of playing to an empty room, but in front of everybody. I guess that, you know, everybody's finding their way around this, you know, kind of virtual socialising and stuff. And, and, and things like being on a Zoom call with 20 people, everybody staring at you. Even that is intimidating enough but then taking it out to speak to millions of people worldwide next level <laughs> yeah a hundred percent it's so true though isn't it it's creating this strange new normal you know all mm. these like even like zoom protocol has become a thing right you know the do's and don'ts and stuff like that but it, but in a funny way i think we spoke about this just before we started recording there's a strange intimacy that's coming with it too i actually believe that will happen a lot with it in music in entertainment I think it will create a strange or rather a really positive new intimacy as well with artists, even in football in my old world. I think those players with characters and personalities that we used to try and kind of uh, sort of extract, if you like, from the footballer beyond the media trained interview that we've all seen so much of. That was um, that was almost a skill, being able to do that on camera and then getting it to our fans and the fans would love it. I think the same could be said right now. I think we'll see far more intimate kind of Zooms, maybe 20-man Zooms with a DJ, maybe the equivalent of a, a an exclusive guest list or an afters, or maybe it's, you know, little trips around people's houses in a cribs-like way. Like the notion of intimacy, I think, in a strange way will be will change i think uh, again it's it's almost an unexpected uh, uh result of this disconnection will be a greater connection because no one can be lazy you can't just badge it you can't just play something out like we ever did so what is the inventive way we can get closer to the artist or the dj like i'm really obsessed with um tim burgess the lead, the lead singer of the charlatans who i used to be a massive fan of when i was young and he does these lovely listening parties at the moment on Twitter, which some of these listeners might have heard or seen, where he'll play a classic record, mainly from like the Britpop, indie, rock era of the 90s. And he'll be tweeting along with it and talking about it. And fans will send in and tweet their paraphernalia, their gig tickets, their memories. It's so emotive, but it's ultimately a bunch of tweets whilst listening to a record. But it's a really lovely, simple kind of use of the medium to bring people together and allow this idea of sharing memories. And it's so intimate with someone who was this wicked rock star ultimately, but it's so personal and close and he answers so many questions. And if one thing to come out of it all is that level of kind of interaction intimacy, then that's that's a strangely that's that's a great positive. Yeah. I don't know if you um if you listen at all to the Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo movie podcast. Yeah. He was speaking in that about how he thinks that the kind of collective viewing experience is going to have a massive swell after this does all pass 
because it, it wasn't oh, that's ten minutes before somebody set up a Chrome extension allowing you to watch Netflix live with your friends, wow. which that's really was entirely doable pre isolation, pre lockdown. But it took this to make people kind of realize, oh, I love it consuming entertainment but i really like doing it when i'm doing it with my friends i love that you know um i mean <laughs> you know i thought i think it was sunday morning i was just having a cursory glance through twitter or insta i can't remember what probably both and i thought bloody hell say what you like about this and it's pretty horrific in many ways um uh even in the lightest way it's horrific and it's part of a lockdown but bloody hell there's some good stuff out there <laughs> like there's an unbelievable yeah. amount whether it be playing the whole of Euro 96, whether it be Joe Wicks's workout for kids, whether it be David Walliam's kids' books that he's reading for the very first time, whether it be people premiering the stuff, whether it be extra episodes of Train Guy from Bob Mortimer. Like it, people are going extra mile. I mean, yeah. there's no shortage of great stuff to find now. I, I, I was saying, saying to a couple of my mates last night, is I'm going to start a petition to Sports Interactive to get them to re-release Championship Manager 2001-2002. Because ah, I feel like this this would be the perfect time oh, for me to spend oh, solid eight it. hours a day. Stop it, because I, I would never do any work. I, I had to come off <laughs> I had to come off that like a crack addiction once. Uh, I, re- I realised I was, I think I can't remember how old I was, but I sort of realised I didn't go out ever on a weekend. I needed to shell Football Manager. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love FIFA career mode, but it just doesn't compare to 0102 channel. Oh, beautiful. 0102. I lo- love the way you're pulling out that vintage edition like it's a fine wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really, really was. Um, I mean, obviously, when this does all blow over and the nature of pandemics is that it, it will obviously pass. Is this something that you guys at Defected are planning to keep running and running, do you think? Yeah, we're... Um... We genuinely didn't expect to do immediately do a second, and that really was a public demand kind of thing. We are uh, we're going to be doing our third. Uh, I think it's announced uh, today as we're recording this, but I think it will be um, around the Easter weekend, which was traditionally a big old kind of clubbing um, uh, party sort of weekend uh, traditionally, which sadly is not going to be the case. So absolutely, that's going to be a big one. I think we've got the likes of Roger Sanchez. It's a quite amazing lineup. We were all doing bespoke and amazing sets we've got lined up for that so it'll be very exciting and I think we're gonna we're gonna keep it going for as long as we are required I mean this is just one idea there's there's actually been quite a lot of stuff but this is the one that most people I guess have ended up covering but we've been doing things like two-hour extended specials of the radio show which have gone down amazingly well there's been loads of social stuff like working from home style staff picks staff playlists we're actually delving into the archives. We're doing a new version of Throwback Thursday from some amazing kind of clubland adventure, brilliant classic old sets. We're going to be doing, we've had people like MK DJ in the horse and groom. We're going, hopefully going to be getting him along and doing kind of live tweeting along to a set. So, so much actual creativity is coming out of the adversity. And just as Simon Dunmore's ambition was to double down on music, as in make new music, put out new records, create great stuff. We're doing exactly the same from the other side of the business, which is content and promo and making episodic stories and mini docs and features and interviews, because now's the time to get it out. And, you know, it's not that it's about this, but we've seen strangely in the last three weeks, we've seen some of the biggest ever growth uh, uh, in our time, which is it shows that people are ready. They're hungry for it. If you make great stuff, 
as we said right at the start, if you make great stuff, fans do the marketing for you anyway. So it's up to you to keep the, the strong ideas and creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll be there on Friday. Awesome. Thanks so much for chatting with us, James. It's been a real pleasure. And um, yeah, keep up the great work. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Big thanks to James and all the crew at Defected. You can check out the virtual festival on Defected.com and through all the usual social channels. We'll put links in the description. Normal service will resume next time when I won't be using up my one daily designated exercise time to record the links. Please do keep on sending in your suggestions for episode topics. We've got a couple in the works already, but we're up for letting this run and run. This has been Lockdown Lowdown, an Engine original podcast from the branded content team at Engine Creative. Produced by me, Leo Birch. The exec producer is Dave Roberts. Charlie Johnson is the creative director. And Bradley Mori is the glue that holds it all together. Thanks for listening. Oh, there's a heron. That's more what I had in mind. It doesn't really work on audio, though. <laughs>